This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we take stock of COVID-19 and education, two years after the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. Although we are still living through the pandemic, this anniversary is a good opportunity for reflection. What worked over the past two years? What didn't? Will there be any lasting changes in education because of COVID-19? We've lost a lot of teachers in the pandemic. We don't have a, a total tally. We held an event on World Teachers Day, a, a memorial event. We created a wall where teachers organizations, unions around the world, uploaded pictures and testimonies of the teachers who died. But I mean, you had, I think, close to 10,000 in South Africa. More than that in Brazil. It actually, some of the videos, it's on our website from, it was called Present, was the name of the memorial. But then you had countries like New Zealand that didn't lose anyone, right? And so you had the U.S. lost thousands. With me to discuss the second anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic is David Edwards, General Secretary of Education International, a global federation of teacher trade unions representing over 30 million education personnel. He is also a Fresh Ed board member and a regular guest on the show. David has worked with and supported teachers around the world as they've navigated schools in chaos. He's also been involved with various international organizations as they developed responses to the pandemic. David Edwards, welcome back to Fresh Head. Pleasure, Will. So the WHO declared COVID a pandemic on March 11th, 2020. So we're basically just past the two-year mark. And I want to reflect on those past two years with you. Just to start, where were you when you realized that COVID was actually going to have a massive effect on education? I was in Malaysia on March 4th, and I was flying back, and everybody on the flight was wearing masks. And I thought to myself, this felt a lot like Liberia with Ebola. It just, it sort of felt like the avian flu, but it felt a little bit different. Then I was in your city. I was in London, actually, at a meeting of the, the general secretaries of the Global Union Federation when Boris gave his big speech about, well, a lot of people are going to die. And sort of all of us decided we needed to get back to our offices to basically close things down. And I was on one of the last trains out of Pancras. Um, I think there were two people on the train on the Eurostar from Brussels. And it was very eerie because I've never been in the Pancras station you know, in the waiting area alone when it wasn't packed with people. And I thought, this feels eerie. The doctor from Wuhan, who is the whistleblower, I was thinking a lot about academic freedom and the need for academic freedom for scientists at the time, had just passed away. You know, I got to the offices, basically was able to come into the studio, make a recording, send an email to everyone, and said, all the things that we've been doing online and virtual will be how we'll have to go from here on. And then I held an emergency executive board meeting on the 12th. And, um, basically shared as much information as I could. At that time, I had a tie into the World Health Organization. I hadn't become an advisor to the COVID in Schools Task Force at that point, but um, I had a connection in with Dr. Tedros. He had been participating in World Teachers Day and things like that. How soon did the WHO start thinking about schooling and schools? I think probably the first meeting was around the 20th of March or the 21st of March when UNICEF and UNESCO. In between there, though, we did a lot of research and surveys of our members quickly just to see how they were doing and what they 
needed. And I commissioned some research on pedagogy during a pandemic and to try to kind of crowdsource what do we know about platforms? What are the different ways if you don't have any type of connectivity, which is the case for most of our members, right, or in countries that didn't have a virtual option, what can be done with WhatsApp, what can be done with radio. So we started collating and bringing all of that experience together. And there was this big focus on students. At that time, they weren't saying outwardly that it was airborne. They knew it was airborne, but they weren't saying it. Trump knew it was airborne, but they weren't saying it openly. There were no masks allowed, remember? And we were wiping surfaces and things like that. And they were talking about washing hands. And we just basically did a quick, fast survey of our members to find that, you know, many classrooms were not going to be able to socially distance at all. They had 80 kids in a classroom and in some parts of Uganda, and they had no potable water. There was no running water, so they weren't going to be able to wash their hands. So you went from kids in Norway that were actually had their hands chapping from repeated washing, and then you had kids in Uganda who had nothing. It's quite amazing the sort of inequalities that sort of appeared because of COVID inside schools. I remember UNESCO very quickly set up their website to start tracking out-of-school children. And I think, you know, the the height of it got to 1.4 billion children out of school. I mean, that is, it's still unbelievable to think that that happened. Yeah. And it was the private schools that closed first. And so you also had all the public schools receiving all these extra kids, which was also quite... And then the bank put out a sort of an analysis, obviously looking at it from an economic lens in terms of foregone wages, what the impact was going to be on reading. But there was this eerie comment in there about probably there's going to be a lot of teachers that are going to pass away as a result of the pandemic. So we'll have to be ready to, to replace them. And has that happened? We've lost a lot of teachers in the pandemic. We don't have a, a total tally. We held an event on World Teachers Day, a, a memorial event. We created a wall where teachers' organizations, unions around the world, uploaded pictures and testimonies of the teachers who died. But I mean, you had, I think, close to 10,000 in South Africa, more than that in Brazil. It actually, some of the videos, it's on our website from, the, it was called Present, was the name of the memorial. But then you had countries like New Zealand that didn't lose anyone, right? And so you had the U.S. lost thousands. And, you know, the, the AFT and the NEA had their own walls up. You know, it was, people were scared. And I think one of the things I was going to say, too, about the, both the WHO, well, there was the WHO that was really talking about children and the impact on children and whether or not children would get very sick. And there was a Lancet study that came out pretty early. I guess it would have been about May that showed that if you compare, if you looked at, at school populations, you know, there were really only about five to 10% of the school populations that were seeming to be high risk in terms of transmission and getting sick. So kids in general should be okay was what they were saying. What they weren't saying was that five and 10% were adults. They were the teachers and the, and the support staff and the administrative staff. In many countries like Portugal, the majority, over 50 percent of teachers are, are 60 and over. So you have the, some countries with really um, an older teaching population. You had the sort of focus on kids. You had the sort of economic focus. And we were quite concerned that no one was really thinking about both in terms of the well-being of teachers, the pedagogical support for teachers, teachers' voice. We did the survey and then we did our forward to school report, which we thought talked about how to ensure teachers' participation in the plans going forward. One of the things that always shocked me was how certain people were when talking about COVID. And I, I think it still happens. You know, so taking the issue of wash your hands and that's that'll protect you and, you know, not necessarily thinking about it in terms of it being airborne or 
this notion that it's, children are safe in schools. But, you know, we at that point, no one, or maybe some people were, but there was very little dialogue about long-term impacts on children or just on anyone when it came to having COVID, long COVID, as we now sort of talk about now. To me, I, there was a bit of disappointment in how humanity responded because there was so much certainty and yet there was we knew so little for me it was a big indictment on i guess education generally right like the way in which our educated societies function and i don't know maybe it's confidence i don't know how to talk about it but there's something that was just really unsettling to me what we saw was the, the societies that had high levels of trust you know trust in institutions trust in governments trust in teachers trust in science you know this was happening remember who was president of the united states at the time right so i mean there was an authoritarian populists all over the world you know that were had their own fake news but the societies that had trust already built in had dialogue already institutionalized those were those were the ones that fared throughout the pandemic fared the best you know and um those trusted their teachers, trusted their health experts. As the science changed, it didn't mean you needed to have another, an entirely different sort of messaging campaign to, to shift people. It's just the science changed. Well, that's, we have more information. So now we have to do this. That's not consistent with this. Well, we didn't know that then. And now we know it now. So that has to change. And um, we've sort of watched this arc ourselves where if you remember the beginning and the, the applause for teachers and the, the appreciation of teachers and different comedians and people were doing videos about how teachers should make a million dollars and this is everyone's testimonials about how hard it was and there was all this gratitude and we were thinking is that going to translate into meaningful sort of policy changes and investment around the state and it was very varied um, the answer to that question i think in general the feeling is it didn't you know and that's what's so frustrating is that there were all of these moments of possible different futures the one thing i remember seeing in as early as march and april of 2020 was in london in some of the communities where i i sort of lived and was sort of active there were all of these mutual aid societies popping up and it was just sort of, wow, there is a totally different way of organizing society. And then, you know, by the summer, it was those mutual aid societies were basically gone. And in a way, it's a similar story of there's this hopeful moment of the narrative changing, teachers being celebrated, paying them a million dollars, and then sort of fading out to the background and going back to normal, so to speak. I say this wherever I get a chance to say it, but I think one of our challenges as EI, one of the things we want to really make sure is that the lessons that were learned during the pandemic are then incorporated to inform the decisions moving forward in terms of what post-pandemic education recovery plan looked like. As you know, and we've talked about on this show before, uh, somewhat wary of opportunistic ed tech companies, you know, who promise the moon and under-deliver spectacularly. And I remember at one such sort of ed tech show prior to the pandemic, there was a entrepreneur talking about a, to ministers of education, a future. Wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, hypothetically, a world where we no longer need brick and mortar schools, a world where we don't need teachers to take up 80% of recurrent expenditure. It could be fantastic with technology. Kids wouldn't even need to leave their bedrooms. Parents could just support them and they could just, they, kids naturally want to be on tech and we can just sort of reimagine education as being in your bedroom. And I always say, well, now that it's no longer a hypothetical, I think I try to make those who propose it own 
what a bad idea that was and the sort of the broader purpose of education and the purpose of schools, the human interaction, the social. I think that's one of the, the lessons we all hope that the fad and what was behind the fads, uh, those are now exposed and that there's some more humility. There's pr probably not going to be a whole lot of humility, um, but a, a bit more humility. How do we go, or you, you know, EI in particular, how do you go about trying to incorporate some of the lessons that we learned from the past two years into, you know, policy changes, into meaningful changes that will actually change the way in which we think about and organize schooling and education in the future. I mean, even, you know, and I should say that the pandemic is still obviously going on. It's not over, but how do you go about it? How do you actually go about incorporating these changes? We start by documenting and, and sharing the stories and the cases and demonstrating the difference of success and utter complete failure. We've partnered with colleagues that organizations would normally have partnered because they sort of came around to see things our way. I think one of the things that is just unmistakable is that if you don't have coherent policy that's informed by continuous dialogue with the practitioners in the classrooms, and you don't have the trust of the practitioners to make meaningful pedagogical choices versus following a script or, you know, but people that actually know their kids, know who's not showing up, know who's hungry, know who might now be a child bride or in child labor. If you don't make the investments to support them in terms of the tools that they need, the training and supports that they need, and the respect that they need, then what you end up with is sort of a scattershot approach where those with means are able to game a system to get more, as we saw a lot of people made a lot of profits on the, the pandemic. And a lot of people fell really not just far behind, they disappeared. And when I say, say policy coherent, everyone talks about leadership and you just need these sort of strong fjordist leaders and whatever. But think about this. In one school, I talked to some teachers in a, in a certain country, I won't say which, but the school leadership were so scared of parents and so scared of the politics. They didn't want to have to say whether or not school would be held presentially, hybrid, or virtually. So they said they let the parents choose whether they wanted to send their kids to school part-time or have a, have a laptop with their kids pick in the school. These are for countries that have, you know, had the connectivity availability or keep their kids at home. And so what that meant for a teacher in terms of organizing the learning and the teaching, I can't tell you how disruptive that would be to try to plan having three different jobs and then in the evenings also parents who are contacting constantly and you're trying to follow up with the parents. And then you, of course, heaven forbid we mention it, teachers tend to be parents themselves. And so there was this, this sort of lack of policy coherence in information. And teachers were telling us they were finding out in the newspaper the morning whether or not they were going in or not. And if they had COVID, what the regulations were in terms of whether there was going to be anyone with their kids supporting their kids. So there wasn't enough support teachers or, or substitute teachers. And by not having that dialogue. Now, you had the other countries where the minister met with the head of the teachers, our affiliate, every week. They looked together at the data. They looked at, at what teachers would need in terms of, of technology and supports and make sure that the social supports and the health supports and nutritional supports and the community school approach. Um, and they didn't have uh, the, the same problems with burnout. Uh, they still had burnout, but they didn't have it nearly to the extent of these teachers who, who feel like they're just, you know, cogs in the machine that are just the last to know but actually have to bear the brunt of all the weight and all the stress and all the tension to actually make something happen meaningfully. So that's something that has to change. Um, the professional autonomy, the trust in the profession, 
investment in, in them looking against these sort of high-stakes scripted curricula, sort of teacher, what you should call the teacher-proof curricula. I really think the teacher-proof curricula is, needs to go. To center the, the teacher and empower them. And, you know, it, it does make me think with the policy coherence, there, things were changing so quickly. And, you know, so for instance, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, what the rules were for testing and if you tested positive and what, what you were supposed to do. And it's like those rules kept changing. And as a, you know, as a teacher myself in higher education, it, it almost just got to the point where it felt like the team that I was working with, we had to make decisions that sort of put public health first, but also still was able to figure out how to provide the education system, you know, education that we were tasked to do. But it, it really felt like we were on our own. And I'm sure all of these other groups of teachers in higher education in the UK made different decisions than we did, right? There really was no support. Even if there was this guidance that was coming out, it almost was like written in a way that was quite meaningless. In the UK, you know, I know that for the NEU and others, they had their first information session. And Mary Boosted told me something like 300,000 people showed up online for the first information session that they did because they weren't getting anything from DFED. And so they were really desperate to say, well, what does this mean? What are our rights to, you know, in, in Argentina, they had the first ever pandemic collective agreement, which had the right to disconnect, which, which actually talked about the time which talked about sort of what the state's obligations were, not just the, the teacher's responsibilities, and, and get that down. So if you had to teach all night, you know, what did that mean in terms of your own leave, your own health? And yeah, I mean, even just like going back to very classic labor struggles over the working day, like how many hours in a day are you supposed to work? And when is that supposed to happen? Was just sort of thrown out the door during COVID, or, you know, it still is in many ways. They just expect you to work at all hours. Yeah, there's this sort of expectation that it's a vocation, right? And that you're sort of, as a calling, you're almost, and it's, you know, there's people who still see education as charity, right? They don't believe it's a right. They don't, they don't believe it's a public good, a public service. Like, they, they really see it as charity. And uh, the teachers should just do what they need to do. And, you know, at the same time, there was this sort of push to try to say, oh, well, teachers' unions, you know, are going to try to do whatever they can to keep school, schools closed, and which actually wasn't the case. They just wanted to make sure they had information that the mitigation, that whatever the regulations were that the government said were actually in place. And um, that became quite a, I think in the middle of the pandemic, that became quite an issue. Yeah. When do you open? How do you open? What's safe? Who's deciding what's safe? How do we take care of all the different needs of the teachers and the students and the support staff? I mean, it's, you know, it's so complex when it comes to sort of public health. But yet, I guess what also frustrated me was that a lot of the public health was analyzed through economic analysis and economic thinking. You know, it wasn't just simply what is the right thing to do for public health. It was, you know, let's compare all of these alternatives and pick the most cost-effective approach. And it was a bit disheartening when I, you know, think back on it now. Yeah, yeah, no, that was absolutely. And I think for many, particularly when once the vaccines were on the table, and the conversation around prioritization for the vaccines, and you wanted teachers to go back, but there were some countries where they didn't want to prioritize them for the vaccines. There's Michael Mina at Harvard who had the, a lot of really important work. I was working with him, uh, Annie Sparrow, and some others that really early on were talking about the importance of the rapid tests. But because they weren't at the high level of, effect, of efficacy as the PCRs, WHO and others didn't want to have, even discuss them. The fact that they could be produced for, you know, one one hundredth of the cost, you know, 
we were thinking about how could you make them more widely available. So if you just had, you know, testing happening in school, that, that would and teachers and students, they they, they piloted places. But um, again, you know, they were saying the costs were just too high for that, and then it, and then all of a sudden they weren't, and then they were everywhere. You know. Yeah, I mean, it really does sort of just shatter the whole notion of what government can pay for, right? I mean, at certain points, it's just that government, there there can be money to do things, you know, in some countries. Yeah, it's just sort of shattered that myth that there's some limited amount of money. I want to ask your opinion on this notion of learning loss, because that's an idea that sort of came out early and has really gained a lot of steam. And, and it's almost now quite common to hear it that you know, there's an amount of learning loss that has happened in different societies and that we need to, you know, provide more tutoring or do new things to sort of overcome this learning loss. How do you think about this notion? Is this something that we should really be prioritizing? Well, I kind of think about learning loss the way I think about learning poverty. So learning poverty is poverty. It's just poverty. There's no food poverty. There's hunger, right? And so learning loss is it's just poverty and the inequalities that we've always dealt with, right? They're just being exacerbated for, for people with more means who are now seeing it uh, more. So to preface it, I'll just say teachers have always been about learning. Teaching and learning has always been something we cared very much about. Literacy wasn't something that a bunch of donors created, you know, the literacy campaigns of the 70s and 80s that we were a part of. We've always talked about people's access to materials, to books, to reading to teacher training uh, possibilities, you know. So it's not like we just show, teachers just show up for some random reason to catch, to get a, a, this fabulous paycheck that they get. So we've always, we've always been concerned about the fact that when students are absent, um, when they don't have the, the supports, when you don't have a quality environment and the tools, that they're getting shortchanged. If they're in a classroom with, with 80 kids, you know, they're getting shortchanged. So we've always talked about these, these inequalities in terms of of what I mean in learning. And, you know, we, I guess, during the pandemic, that mental health of students was so negatively impacted. Um, depression that our members were talking about, the emotional burnout um, from empathizing with our students and what they were going through and, and how that was impacting teachers, where certainly you're trying to, to teach as best you can, whichever way you can, but you also are much more cognizant of the well-being aspects of all these other, the multidimensional aspects of education and learning. So to have sort of a, a bumper sticker about the learning loss was useful for those that were always talking about, you know, learning poverty and, you know, the learning crisis and the, you know, that which, which gins up a, a bunch of uh, donor dollars and then impact assessments and rate of return comp computations and, and things like that. We were looking at the educational loss. We were looking at the much more broad, I think, in terms of, of, of just the, the, the reading and math. But, you know, our teachers were really concerned about the fact that some of their, they hadn't seen some of their students for years, for eight months. There's students that came back after, in Uganda, they just came back recently, a couple of months ago, right? So, I mean, there were students that were not receiving um, any kind of education in that period. And the plans that you have and the way in which education plans build off of each other, right? And so whether you have a looping kind of process or whatever your scaffolding is, you know, it's really, really difficult. But it, 
it isn't like not, no learning was happening. At the same time, I think Posse and, and uh, Salberg and others were talking about the fact of what students were learning about the pandemic and about um, public health and about the importance of schools and each other and, um, and all sorts of other things that we weren't tracking because they're not easily measured. And that's, I mean, that is the, the big failure of our whole movement, right? We only measure where the street light is under the street light and leave the rest of the avenue, you know, as um, less important. It's been two years. The pandemic isn't going away. There's going to be new variants. It's going to continue to impact schools in different ways and students and teachers in different ways around the world. For the foreseeable future, I have no clue how this really ends. What lessons would you draw, the big lessons from the past two years that you would like to see us sort of keep a focus on and in mind as we move forward into the third year of the pandemic? Well, I mentioned some of them already. I mean, I can, I really, the community school lesson, the lesson of the school as the heart and hub of a community for public services and the public school, I think is just if we don't learn that one, and if we don't then sort of backward map from there saying, okay, what are the resources that they actually need? Not what are we willing to give them, but what are the actual resourcing that it's actually going to take? The underinvestment in education has been laid bare for a long time, but never so much as right now. So I think really talking differently about uh, how you work across sectors, how you think sort of about the cross-section of health and nutrition and education and, and, and support systems in a school, figuring out the other institutions that could sort of work together to sort of support that school versus um, a model where you have this sort of top-down directives that kind of go out. So I, I think the community participation, community involvement, but with real uh, investment coming from the center the tax base and is absolutely uh, essential. I think we don't treat our teachers very well. And um, I think that was something that's really hard to swallow, um, that we need more than thanks for teachers uh, around the world. And, um, you know, stagnant wages, really incredibly difficult conditions that you can't separate out the sort of the teaching part and the pedagogy from the conditions and the structures in which enable that. That's a false choice. Those those are two inextricably linked things that have to be done in concert because we're losing teachers, quite frankly. Teachers are leaving the profession. Younger teachers, young people are less likely to want to come into the profession right now. And um, I think we need to have, a, we have to have a real rethink uh, as a society, as societies, about the valuing of teachers and their rights and, and but also talking about their salaries, talking about their working conditions, talking about their voice, talking about, you know, their research and their expertise and their knowledge in, in a very fundamentally different way um, is, is another piece. I think infrastructure is, a, is the other one. It is it, Anyone who's following this, you know, it's ventilation. We're going to be, for a long time, um, thinking about ventilation in different ways. We're talking about the climate crisis. We're talking about increased temperatures. We're talking about overcrowded schools that are at a distance that for some rural children to get to, we're going to need to be able to build more schools. We're going to need to be able to hire more teachers, but we're going to really think about health-promoting schools and health-promoting infrastructure decisions that I think. And having teachers themselves 
uh, at the table in the design and, and definition of what that looks like is going to be uh, really, really important uh, going forward. I think the end, it's sort of like the experts just need to kind of take a backseat. I really think, no offense to my friends in Washington and London and, and all the other think tank centers that are tracking and, you know, telling ministries and everybody else what needs to happen. But I think they just need to, to um, take a back seat uh, right now because a lot of their predictions and a lot of their advice um, actually didn't lead to substantially more learning or access or, or, or safety. And the micro-innovations, the, the collaboration that happened at the school level did. So I think we need to shift. We need to shift the power away from the, the talking heads and the, and the experts and really ask communities what they need. And I think that that power shift has to happen as a result of it. Well, David Edwards, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed again. It's always a pleasure to talk, and I totally agree. The, the experts need to just step aside. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. David Edwards is the General Secretary of Education International. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Aktas, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.